The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix, and we'd recommend you check out the new documentary Descendant, now streaming on Netflix. This film by Margaret Brown is quite honestly one of our favorites of the year, and it's not just us. It's appearing on lots of Oscar preview lists. It's a richly layered story about the search for and the discovery of the Clotilda, the last known ship to arrive with enslaved Africans in the United States. But what it really is, is the story of the descendants of this ship, whose ancestors survived this horrible journey on the Clotilda, founded the community of Africa Town, which is now part of Mobile, and passed down their stories through the generations. This film, like these stories, is a true treasure. So check it out now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Andy Timoner, the director of Last Flight Home. The film is really about my father, Eli Timoner, and his extraordinary personality. He chose to die last year in California. We didn't even know that there was an end-of-life option act at that time or that there was anything approaching deaths with dignity, but luckily there was. And so we had this waiting period and the film really takes place during that period, but it looks back on his life, which was filled with incredible achievements and wild successes and also crushing and tragic accidents and perceived failure. Last Flight Home is a deeply personal family story about Andy's father, Eli Timoner, his extraordinary life and the emotionally wrenching but in some ways beautiful, final 15 days of his life. Andik Timoner is a two-time recipient of the Sundance Film Festival's Grand Jury Prize for her documentaries Dig and We Live in Public. Her other features include Cool It, Brand a Second Coming, and Coming Clean, as well as the narrative feature Maplethorpe. This film is a real departure for Andy, but really it's a real departure, period. You just don't see films like this get made. No one, it seems, wants to see a film about death. Certainly not one that is as up close and personal as this one. It just makes us uncomfortable. But in retrospect, this is a film that, even if we don't think we want to see it, we're extremely glad that we did. And I think, in retrospect, Andy really was the perfect person to make this film. She's always used her camera to try to understand what other people are going through in moments of great intensity. The difference here is that she's also in front of the camera. Besides that, was the quarterback of her dad's care, as she describes it. Finally, I'll just say that I saw a lot of similarities between Andy's dad and my own father, and also how in Eli's final days, as well as my father's, the family he loved so much and who in turn loved him just as fiercely was gathered around him to spend those final days and moments in his immense presence. Death comes to all of us, but that doesn't mean we're all prepared for it when it comes for one we love. Last Flight Home shows us what it means to confront the terror and pain of death, but also to embrace it as an opportunity to make a loved one's dying days as meaningful as the life that preceded them. I'm so glad that Andy made this film, that I got to see it, and that I had the experience of talking to her about it. Last Flight Home is currently in limited theatrical release and will be released by MTV Documentary Films at a date to be announced. 
As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Andy Timoner, the director of Last Light Home. Andy Timoner, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. It's a wonderful film, touching film, in some ways a difficult film, but it is a great film. So congratulations. Thank you. I just want to jump right in with the pre-title sequence. In the pre-title sequence, you cover a lot of narrative ground. Your 92-year-old dad's not doing well physically. He's in the hospital due to severe breathing issues. He's become completely immobilized. It's during COVID, so you can't even visit him. And he states at some point that he wants to end all this agony. The family gets together on Zoom to discuss things with him. He then goes into hospice care and is brought home with the intent to begin the process of ending his life legally under California law. So the 15-day clock is about to start ticking on his life. There's a lot here, and somewhere in the midst of all this, you're filming, and at some point decide that you want to make a film about it. What made you decide to make this film, and how did it evolve into what it would eventually become? I started recording Dad right off the bat when he was in the hospital for breathing issues because I was desperate not to forget his voice. He was saying the Shema to my sister and telling us that it was time to go all of a sudden. And he was the most tenacious person any of us ever knew. So we had no idea that it would come to this in this kind of precipitous way. He had just told me that he'd be there to see my son off to college and we didn't even know where Juki had gotten into yet. And suddenly he was saying it's time. So I started recording with my iPhone on these phone calls. And then when the clock was going to start, he was going to come home and begin hospice. I actually went to see a spiritual consultant that I go see once in a while when I'm facing insurmountable things in my life because I had such an urge to film him and to take out cameras and to just film every minute of the final days of his life. And I just couldn't understand where this was coming from and why I felt this and whether or not it was going to be too painful for the whole family, whether it was going to mediate my experience or hurt their experience. or So I just thought this might be wrong and let me go talk about it. And she thankfully said, if you feel like you need to film, you should film, but make sure that you fill yourself up with your father one-on-one -on -one before you put up cameras, before you hit record. Ken, I've been making films for so long and filming life as it's unfolding has always been my credo. My family, first of all, is very used to me filming, and I am used to filming without it really interfering with my experience of things. So I actually decided, I asked dad before he came home, and I said, I feel like I need to film you now. What do you think about that? How do you feel about cameras being set up? And he said, I instinctively know you're on the right track. Now, my father had a stroke when I was nine, and... I cannot remember him, physically remember him. Like I have no memory of him actually moving in any scene in my head from before that time. It's blocked and I've tried everything to unblock it and recover those memories, wanting to remember what it was like when he was able-bodied. And so I was terrified to forget 
him now and forget his personality. And I think that was a large reason why I felt like I needed to set up cameras. Really, I was just trying to bottle him up. I had, during the entire process, had no intention of making a feature documentary. And no one thought I was. And that's kind of moms and rollers and a moo and David's wearing the same shirt three days in a row. You know, no one was thinking that we were going to make a documentary about this time. And at what point did you realize, I think that the feature documentary form is probably the best use of this footage? It was a process. I mean, we realized how important dad having the agency to really make this decision to have a day that he would go after having 40 years of living as a hemiplegic and paralyzed for him to be able to say, okay, March 3rd is going to be the day was very empowering for him. And then getting to know the hospice workers and everything, I thought, okay, we should at least make a short film to advocate for this law because there was a sunset clause on the law that was going to be like 2026 that it's up for, you know, could be overturned. And I thought, at the very least, we should do this to support, but not as personal and not as intimate a film as what ended up transpiring. I think that we as a family felt we should give back in that way so that even by the time Rachel came out, we figured we would do that. But what happened was Rachel asked me to make a memorial video about two weeks after dad passed. And I had one week till the memorial. And she just said, you have all this footage. Can you put five to 10 minutes together? And I said, sure. And I never stood up from the avid. Like dad was bottled up. Like he was inside the avid. It was like he was alive. And I realized just how incredibly healing it was for me to just be with him in that way. And I couldn't stop. I was laughing, crying, editing. And I ended up with a 32-minute memorial video that really threw my sister for a loop the night before because she's like, well, dad asked me to organize this memorial and now you've handed me a 32-minute film. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, she played it. And the reaction from the people around the world who were part of the Zoom memorial was an indication to all of us that there was definitely a lot of beauty, light, and love in this footage. It didn't go to the places that the feature film goes. But I couldn't stop editing after that, to be honest, Ken. It was how I spent my time, nights and weekends. And I didn't want to be anywhere else because I was dad's sidekick during all this. I was like his, the quarterback of his care. I was the kid in the family of the children that could clear my schedule because it was COVID and I wasn't on a shoot. And I just was there every second of every day. But I was also really involved with the challenges of getting my mom to face dad's departure. She was sort of in denial. I had the caregivers coming in and out and the hospice nurses and doctors and daddy qualifying for this because he had to prove that he was of right mind and sound to be able to make this decision and be able to carry through the very complicated process of dying at the end, which you see in the film. And there was the bigger arc that the whole family was on, the big challenge of trying to get dad to realize he had provided us with everything when he thought he gave us nothing. So there was a lot that I was doing. And now being in an edit bay, I was able to kind of sit and watch through the observational eyes of the cameras. And I saw all kinds of amazing pearls of wisdom and moments that were so profound of learning that my family and I were blessed enough to have. And I started to feel as a filmmaker, if I don't share this, it's almost unethical in some way as it gets against the way that I've lived my life for 30 years. I've like learned through a camera. The camera's always been a bridge to learning for me to then share again what I've learned with audiences. And 
this was the greatest learning experience of my life. It was the most beautiful and sacred space I've ever inhabited. And I just felt like we all have to go through this. And if I don't share this, you know, what am I doing? So then it was a matter of convincing my family to get on board with that choice. So how did your family feel about making the film? My sister doesn't really like cameras. I think she likes them more now because she loves the film. But when we asked her, you know, we're going to, we're filming. You've seen that we're filming. She'd been on Zoom for most of the time of the waiting period. And now she was coming out to be by dad's side for the last five days. And I said, you realize we're filming and I hope that's okay. She said, it wouldn't be my choice, but dad, mom, what do you think? And they both said, we want this. It's really interesting. As we approach the final day, even family members jump behind the camera. Like if my brother's daughter or son was talking to our father, he would start operating the camera sometimes. So I think it became really important to the family to have a documentation of it. But Rachel, though she's a rabbi and is very involved in people's birth, the birth of their children, their death, and everything in between, this was something that she wanted to keep private and felt should be private. And also, at this point, when I asked her, Reform Judaism, the law was against ever helping anyone die. It was not something that could be done. It was against Jewish law. And here she is, the Reform rabbi of the biggest synagogue in, in Brooklyn for Reform Jews, Congregation Beth Elohim. And she's a really fierce and effective, dedicated social and political activist. I don't know if you know much about her work, but... Well, some of that is, is clear in the film. And then I did read a bit about her background. And yeah, she is quite a force of nature with all of her work. Yeah, she's incredible. But she has said and wrote in the foreword to get ahead of this, to get in front of this documentary before the Sundance premiere. She wrote an article for the foreword, which explains that she wouldn't have chosen this. It wasn't part of her platform as a rabbi. It wasn't on her agenda. None of us in the family had really ever thought of medical aid and dying or death with dignity at any length. It's not something that's really talked about very much. I think we as a society avoid death and dying pretty steadily. It is the last taboo in some respects. Exactly. Because we're desperately scared of our mortality. But I would argue from going through this that the fear of death actually cheats our lives in some way and learned as a family that if we could stand together and face it and look at it, there was a lot of beautiful richness that we could then derive from each other and together and even bring back into our lives now that dad is gone. So it was transformative. But back to Rachel, you know, she was in a position where here she is helping dad die, literally helping me help dad in that moment, in those final moments when she makes that very loyal and upstanding choice to hold the cup with me, with him. It was going to be possibly very damaging to her career. She's just a very brave and courageous person. Ultimately, she saw first the healing power it had on mom. Mom would watch the film. First, she watched the memorial video. Then she watched the film every single night for the first, at least the first year after dad died. And now mm -hmm. she watches it maybe three to four times a week to spend time with him and feels that he's sort of alive in this movie. Well, if the film accomplished nothing else other than that, it would have been a success. Yeah, that's what Rachel was feeling. Then she showed it to some people and the action was that they could play out their own lives and their own parents and their own deaths and their own, yeah, everything on screen. I think it's a very interesting 
fact. I would venture to say it's a fact, but it's ironic that in storytelling, the more intimate and the more particular and detailed, the more opportunity that people have to actually tether to it themselves and find a connection with it in their own lives. And you would think that casting a wide net, you know, telling a more general story would allow for more space for people to find themselves in the story. But it's actually the opposite I've found again and again. So in this case, I think, and I've heard from audiences that they really have a chance to kind of rehearse what they would do, what they will do, or to go back and look at what they have done when they've lost loved ones. Absolutely. You have definitely created that space. I can speak personally and say, I very much recognized that room, that space, that sacred space that you talked about. I've been there myself in somewhat different circumstances, but I know what it's like to be in a room like that. You almost want to carry it with, you know, I wanted to try to have that feeling every day of my life, if I could carry that. And I think the feeling Caroline Labresco described it at our screening last night, presence. It's just complete and it's complete presence. Nothing outside that room matters. And that's why I included dad on the phone with Bank of America or dad talking about his bills, just to kind of give us the contrast of how these things that we have to do because we're taxpaying citizens, like, you know, who have bills and things like we have to keep keep on swimming. But at the end of the day, none of that matters. It's not what we take with us. And when we're all in that space together, it's almost like the sun when it's setting is like the brightest and most beautiful it ever is. The color shines the brightest and it's like that with life at the end. I want to talk a bit about your creative process. Creatively, this is very different terrain for you. It is a personal film. You and your family are pretty much the sole focus. It's raw. It's well-made, but of course, but it's raw. And it's concentrated into a 15-day period, basically, in one location. I'm curious, how did you recalibrate your creative process to make this very different film and at the same time draw upon the experience of a lifetime of making films? I'll start with the second part of the question. This was the first time in my life that filmmaking was actually there for me. It really was how I survived this experience of losing the most important person in my life. The idea that there would be something of him left was a comfort to me that allowed me to be fully present with him. I didn't have to do as my spiritual advisor had said and wait to turn the cameras on. I know how to turn cameras on, place them out of the way, but strategically, and then forget about them. And I think that is new because usually I'm operating the camera and I'm often holding a camera in my hand when I'm making documentaries. But in this case, I put them on sticks most of the time. And I took the filmmaking process, the batteries, the cards, all of that out of the room, out of the space. It was gone. So really, there were just these cameras that were easy to forget about for my family that I've heard my siblings say that they really didn't even register the cameras. Like they, you walk in the room, you'd see them, but then first of all, there's just a much more important thing happening. We were all sort of in shock the whole time. The filmmaking process was pretty much invisible. And when people came to visit, I would go and operate the cameras. Sure, I'd go check on them, but there were many times, Ken, that they ran out of battery or microphones died or whatever. So I actually put a surveillance camera up on the ceiling on the top shelf of a cabinet to keep track of time of day 
and the hour of the day because I knew that I was not going to be able to keep the records in order, the cards or do any kind of the usual media management that I would normally do. And I just wanted to make sure that I had something because I wasn't even going to be checking on the cameras that much. And we do actually see some footage from that camera toward the end, don't we? One time, yeah. It's not the best footage because it's a Nest camera, but <laughs> but it was all that we had at that moment. I was with dad and Gigi, his only granddaughter, was having a very, very hard time facing his death and facing him before his death. He called her over and that was the only camera that was actually there to capture at least her getting called over. And then I stand up and walk out and that's when I, you know, run and get a battery and card and everything like that. So it was really not, it wasn't about that. We weren't making a film, but I do know how to document life because of doing it for, I mean, Dig was like 2,500 hours footage and We Live in Public was like 5,000 hours. So those two alone trained me pretty well. And uh, even Brand a Second Coming or Coming Clean, some of my latest films, I, I filmed a lot of just life unfolding. And so, yeah, I think that finally, like all of that prepared me for this moment to be able to capture my favorite person in the world on his way out. It's one thing to capture life unfolding, but one thing that's different here is you have this 15-day countdown, as it were, which is required by law in this situation. But what that does, in effect, is create a 15-day shooting period for you. What was it like to know, I'm going to be shooting this, and it's in 15 days, it's basically over? Those same films I referred to all took years and years and years. So I've never had such a finite shooting period, but it wasn't quite as finite as that because it's actually really hard to get the medicine and also to find doctors that will participate in this. You kind of have to work with their schedule and there were weekends involved and such. So actually January 28th was when daddy was in the hospital and he died on March 3rd. So it was a longer period Some of it was audio and Zooms. I think he came home on February 10th or 11th, but we couldn't get the medicine because it had to come from a San Diego pharmacy and it had to be ordered. And then I think there was like a three-day holding period on the medicine. I made it 15 days because it is a 15-day waiting period. That was the clock we were operating, but it was more like 21, I think, or 24, something like that. And then we did film on the day after he died as well. But you're absolutely right. Compared to my usual films, it was... Not a lot. However, we did amass for the edit well over 500 hours of footage, between five and 700 hours of footage in that period of time because of multiple cameras and all of that. Your dad is under hospice care and has chosen under California's end of life option law to end his own life. Can you talk a bit about this law, how it came into being and where we're at with it now? Yes, I would love to because it has changed since then. And it's important that we know this because we're all losing our parents. It seems like a lot of my friends are losing their parents right now. And it's important to know, and we all have lost so many loved ones in the last few years, but the law has actually changed in California since this film. And now it's two days waiting period. So there is really barely any waiting period. And I think our family would have been horrified by that because dad really wanted to go right then and it wouldn't have given us the chance to bring closure for him, but also for ourselves and for our children. It doesn't mean that you have to die in two days, but you can get the medicine a lot easier 
now, apparently. I, I don't know that that's exactly true because I bet there would be all kinds of red tape like what we went through and the pharmacy then has to order it from somewhere else. So there'd probably be delays. It might be more like five days, but the law dictates two days now and you can help a person. So you can actually hold the cup with the person. And they've come up with apparently flavors like chocolate and strawberry. So it would have been less bitter for him if we did it now. Several of those things become real challenges for your dad and for you personally to, at the end. And I'm not sorry that I left that in, though my mother asked me to please edit it, to take it out. She didn't want the end cut out. She wanted his struggling to be cut back. And that was hard to not give her what she wanted. And I did it a little bit, but I did feel that it was extremely important that we have a conversation about the way in which we administer end-of-life medicine. Does it have to be in these three stages? Does it have to be like an obstacle course where if dad didn't drink the drink in two minutes, he would be in a coma? And after taking a drink that slowed his heart and then also a drink that slowed his lungs, to then have a person who's 92 and already terminally ill to be able to drink something. In this case, it was so bitter. My cousin who you see in the film, her father had ALS and chose to die in Vermont. And she had to manually crush 100 opioid pills. So every state has a different way of doing it. And I think first, we obviously need to try to get the law changed for all the people in New York and many other states. It's really about the right over our own bodies, which I know we're talking about a lot lately with Roe v. Wade. So I think that this falls under that umbrella, but also we should hopefully look at making this an easier process for people that are dying and for their families, because it was very hard for us to see dad go out that way. Hopefully the film will be around for a while. Hopefully it will help change laws. I know that Compassion and Choices, which is the biggest organization on the front lines of fighting for death with dignity, has the law up in 22 different states right now. And we already showed it to some members of the New York State Legislature, and we'll do it again. We'll make this film as available as it needs to be to help with that. But again, not the reason I made it necessarily, but definitely if my dad's suffering, which I really couldn't take away beyond helping him die all those many years, if all of that can somehow through the magic of film, help relieve suffering for, you know, thousands of terminally ill patients that are right now wishing that they could die. That would be an incredible legacy for dad. I mean, I think seeing those scenes play out at the end really does fit the unvarnished quality of the film and its total commitment to showing things the way they are. So I really applaud you for making that difficult decision to show that struggle at the end as hard as it is, I'm sure, to watch in the edit. Thank you, Ken. There was a legal concern too. A lawyer said, you really should cut that part out where you take the glass, hold the glass, and you help dad. And we talked about it. And Rachel said, if you could maybe see if maybe you can not have my hand on the glass because I don't want any haters to come after me. They're going to grab a still of it and they're going to come after me. When I went back to the edit, there was really no way to do that. I was determined that I was kind of like, come and get me. We need to have this conversation and I think I'm going to be okay. <laughs> I remember before Sundance, I remember turning to my now wife who scored the film and saying, oh my God, babe, we didn't look up like what is going to happen to me? What is going to be the punishment if they do come after me for this? We didn't ever, we were just film was just a bigger concern than the legalities of that. But then obviously when dad was going through it, there was just no way I was going to let him 
be in some kind of in-between state for eternity. He had to go right then and he needed my help. And I wasn't going to, I mean, I think people would understand the choice that I made to help him. And then Rachel, again, bravely, when I couldn't figure out how to show it without her hand being in it, because every single angle had her hand in it, holding the glass, holding my hand, holding the glass. And there was no way to cut it out. She said, forget it. I'm just, I'm going for it. Forget it. Leave it in. It was a courageous decision. And thankfully, no police have shown up at any of your doors as of yet. No, but maybe when they hear this podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, it does raise the issue for me of roles, the different roles that you all play in these last 15 days. And I'm talking specifically about the three children here, you, your brother, and your sister. You all take on distinct overlapping, but distinct roles in these final days that to me seem to be probably a distillation of roles you've played throughout your adult lives or even as children growing up. Rachel's the rabbi, so she takes on the role of leading the way on all things related to the Jewish religion and customs. You're the filmmaker who can direct when you need to, and your brother seems to be the financial advisor. Roles are important in families, but sometimes they can feel a bit confining. How did you all feel about taking on a kind of concentrated version of these roles during the last 15 days of your father's life? I think for my sister, it was, as she says in the film, really challenging to have to be his rabbi and also his daughter because she was crushed, as we all were, at the concept of losing dad. And here she was, she had to be strong and clear-headed and the guide really for all of us. My son recently said how much my sister helped him, the singing at the end, the vidui, the way that she led dad through the deathbed confessional, which she really improvised a lot of that, by the way, as we recently were in, at Yom Kippur, we were all in New York for the release of the film there. And we went to Yom Kippur and she led us in the entire congregation of a thousand families and through the vidui. And it was a prayer with all these words. I'd never really paid attention, I guess, before enough to notice it. And it stood out to me, oh my God, Vidui. It was a beautiful prayer. But at the end I said, Rachel, the Vidui, we did it, but it's all these written words. You didn't say anything to dad of those written words. And she said, oh no, I improvised. She's just a phenomenal spiritual leader overall. And being able to tuck dad in to know that we should put dirt into the grave with our hands and with shovels until, you know, we were there till the tractors came tucking dad in. We weren't raised very religious. Rachel has sort of had a calling to become a rabbi, but the practices she shared with us were so important to our family. And dad, who had never been religious, really turned towards Judaism there at the end. So thank God she is a rabbi, but I did carefully make sure that you see the emotion that she's struggling with, even after the Vidui when she's crying on the couch. Moments like that where you just get to be with her as a daughter because, yeah, it was a lot of, of bravery and strength it took for her to wear both hats. And she's the oldest child, so she kind of came in as the leader. And as you saw, Ken, in Vidui, she tells me to stand down. Basically, she says, here's the exercise. <laughs> always, always the big sister, for sure. She was my big sister. Big sister slash rabbi telling me to not comfort dad in that moment was enough to get me to snap into place. But I, I left it in because I think it's great learning about how we can't take people's shame away. They have to release it themselves, which thankfully dad was really able to do after that. And for me as a filmmaker, 
I was sure I had cameras going, but, and here we are talking about a film I made, but I was his daughter, really. I was his best friend. And at one point he said, thank you for your adoration of me. We just sat together forehead to forehead most of the time. So I didn't think of myself as a filmmaker, but I was, I am a producer, right? And I was able to produce the end of his life. So I was able to produce all the Zoom calls, for example. I had the idea that he should say goodbye to people and that part of him realizing the impact he had on people's lives is talking to his first pilot and his first flight attendant and all of the people he had touched. through Everyone he ever knew was touched by him. If a, an electrician went over to the house to make a repair, they fell in love with dad. Everyone fell in love with dad. I put the word out that dad was going to die on March 3rd. And the response was tremendous. You know, some people were scared to, to face him and to say goodbye, didn't know what to say. But most people faced it. And what I found in the edit was that these moments and these visits, these in-person visits that he received were some of the most important parts of the film for me because that's all of us standing there trying to grapple with death, you know? And dad was such a brilliant, courageous, funny and witty sort of leader for all of us as to, okay, don't be scared. If anything, he helped us all to deal with death overall in the way that he behaved and talked to everybody through that time. So producing sort of the Zoom calls, producing the celebration of life at the end, the last day where the whole family got to be together and we drank champagne and we got him caviar, all his favorite foods. And we told stories and he told jokes and the grandkids sat around the bed, all of that produced in a way by me but I did very little directing. I only tried to direct my mom to spend time with my dad before it was too late. That was the only, and that's more me being a daughter and just a bossy person, I guess. <laughs> like in that moment, I was just like, mom, sit with him. And I had said that a lot to her and I finally just had to get her to do it. It's something that is clear to us and it becomes a running theme that we see that she's not really able to deal. I mean, she is avoiding him. Uh, yes. She's avoiding the situation. And you're very clued into that. You talk to your sister about it. You confront your mom with that information. You talk to your dad about it. And eventually, toward the end, she does have that moment. It's when she remembers this World War II love song and she starts to sing it. And that's when it seems like the dam breaks. Yes. Yes. And I'll be seeing you. Yeah, she yeah. sings it to him. And what do you think it was about that song? Or was it just she had just reached that point where she was ready to break down? I think that there were a lot of people in her house. I think my brother says it best early in the film when he says mom is really struggling because she can't take care of him anymore. She needed him to go to a facility and she feels guilty about that. And at the same time, she is terrified to lose him. So she tries to convince him on the final day, not to die and to please go to a facility so she can have him in her life still. They were best friends for 54 years of marriage and did the crossword puzzle together and really were a team. That was the thing about all of our roles. And you mentioned my brother too. We were the T team, you know, she made it so. She is a rock. She's an incredible role model for all of us. And she was only with an able-bodied husband and jet-setting around. He had the fastest-growing airline in the history of the world. And the airline was like a family, Air Florida. So she went from 17 years of seeing that grow and build, and then in an instant, her ne husband's neck is cracked, and she's 
goes from jet setting to caregiving. And the decline was pretty significant in those last years. So she was struggling and is struggling, is physically not great right now. COVID took its toll on the both of them. I think it was a mixture of that and the house full of people with hospice workers, with you know, my cameras with people visiting, she felt like she was hosting the whole time and making sure everybody was fine. And then suddenly it's coming to the day that he's going to die and she just tries to convince him to live. And he said, I'm sorry, I've already made my decision. He's apologizes to her. He feels like it's cruel to her. And I think she goes to this song because this is just my interpretation, but I think it was her grasping for how am I going to know that you're still with me? What am I going to do alone? She had lived more of her life with him than without him by a long shot. I think I'll be seeing you in the moon and in the stars and in the night. And all the lyrics were just a comfort. And she wanted to share that with him. And that's when she really, you know, breaks down. But she had a really hard time, Ken, after he died. She couldn't believe it that he was gone. No matter what I did to try to help her get that closure, I don't know that she really did in the way that my siblings and I were able to. David, by the way, is not just a financial planner. Like he would come with supplies. He would physically help dad. My son and my brother were the only two people strong enough to help dad off the floor or to help dad change, change him at night. I tried when I threw my back out in one of those early 15 days. I think you see that in the beginning of the film, you see my son and I trying to help change dad. And my back was screwed up for like a week after that. It was just too much physically. And David is really the rock of the family as dad was now. And I'm sort of the emotional support animal is what I call myself to mom. And I think I was then not as much a director as an emotional support animal to both of them. <laughs> so there's a lot more to talk about, but we're running short on time. I'm going to go to the end of the film. I'm sure it was a challenge for multiple reasons to figure out how to end the film. And I really like how you did choose to end it. It really does stick to the 15-day timeline. After he dies, your family helps wipe down your dad's body, dress him, and then he's taken away. And there's one final shot of your mom, and then it just cuts to the first credit. There is some footage of the funeral after that and one final shot at the very, very end. But how did you land on that ending? And why did you choose that shot of your mom as the last shot before the first credit? It was not even, there was never a decision between that shot and some other shot. It was clear that that was the final shot to me. This whole movie came out through me. It's hard to explain. I've never had an editing experience quite like it. I really feel like in a way it's almost dad's final gift to me and to us by extension at this point. And it came right through me. It was just clear. So many of the decisions and choices I made, they were not even like decisions. They were just kind of, it just went, just happened. As soon as I saw that shot of mom, myself closing the gate, I feel like that beat up van taking our father's body away, the empty bed, the sheet, them moving him like that after we cleaned his body and, and realized he had again suffered without complaining through the bed sores. He just was an incredible human being. But my mom looking into the great nothingness, looking over the ravine, I don't know. It was just like, what next? Now what do we do as a living? What do we go on and do now? And I felt like for the audience, that was the way to leave them. Like for all of us, what do you do to close something like that, really? 
what else is there? And so I just went to black. And then I thought that Rachel's sermon from Yom Kippur was incredibly important as an ending with the funeral shots, because I think there's so much in this film. And I felt like it was important to give people one concept to leave them with that they can bring into their own lives, which is to look at how we measure our lives and to really reassess. And if we don't have a lot of money in our bank or we haven't had a hit movie recently or, you know, whatever it is, however, we're judging ourselves by these sort of outside measures to really look at our kids and our parents and our friends, how we interact with the people in our lives. And that really is the true measure of who we are as people. As dad said, the more love you give, the more you get. It's a circle of love. So I thought that was an important way to end the film, actually. Yeah, there are so many life lessons in this film, which, of course, is a bit ironic since it's about the end of life. But the end of life is one of the most crucial stages of life. And I think you have really shown it in a way that it's never been shown before. I've never seen it before. I learned so much. I've gone through something somewhat similar with my own father who had congestive heart failure Mm. and my sister and I and her children, my wife, we were around his bedside at the end. And I certainly recognized many aspects of what you all went through as I watched the film. But you also educated me about how to say goodbye, about the importance of this vidui ritual, which I had never heard about and has a tremendous impact on the whole process. So there's so much here. And I greatly admire the truthful way that you show us all these things. I wanted to close by asking, it's been a year and a half, basically, since your dad's death. What is his presence in your life now? What do you hear him telling you? When I finished the memorial video, I got up and went to go walk the dogs because they were being very patient, as was my partner, Morgan. We went out on our usual block, and I always called dad my North Star. We walked around towards facing the north in the mountains, and there was suddenly this shooting star out of nowhere. And it was like a, almost like a comet. It went across in just this perfect arc across the road we were on over the mountains right in front of us. And I just, tears just sprung from my eyes. And I felt in that moment, it was dad saying, thank you. I do feel that he is very happy right now with us and watching over us. I'm pretty agnostic and I didn't really ever consider if people can watch over us or if they're around. And I have to say that I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, he was so sure he was going to. My mom has looked for signs of him and I've had other ones that were pretty meaningful. You know how he would warm up people's hands. He would always say, let me warm your hand with his one warm hand. He says that to Benji on the morning he dies. And one, he told me once, you'll know I'm around is your hands will get warm. And one day I was just feeling totally normal body temperature. And all of a sudden my hands just had this beautiful warmth to them that was not hot. It was just warm. It felt like he was holding my hands. So I've had moments like that, but my mom has not. And uh, I heard her say, I think it was yesterday, that the way the film has brought the family together, like not that we We're not a very close-knit family to begin with, but the fact that we are putting this out together and we're doing these Q&As together, we're traveling together, and we were in Telluride in that beautiful house together. And in New York, she feels like dad is just bursting 
with happiness because that was his favorite thing was seeing us all together. That's why the last day of his life was so beautiful because he had everyone there. And ever since then with this film, we've been together. Yeah, it's a pretty beautiful full circle. I'm so glad to hear that the film has brought you together and you have really, with this film, I think you have added on to your dad's wonderful legacy. Thank you so much for making this film, Andy, going on this journey and talking to me today. Thank you, Ken. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. If you can tell us what's up next for you. I wrote a script about my father. I had no intention of ever making a documentary about dad because though his story was something I always dreamed to tell ever since I became a filmmaker, I had very little archival footage. So it was really never an option in my mind to bring Air Florida and his airline and all of that to life in a documentary. So people would always ask if I was gonna make a doc and I said no. And finally, about six years ago, wrote a scripted film, you know, a screenplay with him and in tandem with him. And we actually reviewed it in the final days of his life. So I would love to make that film sometime in the next few years. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary, Hidden Gem, a film that maybe doesn't get a lot of recognition that you'd like to spotlight? Keep on keeping on. I don't know if you ever saw that movie about Clark Terry. It's a great film and it should have been nominated. It deserved everything. And it was just so absolutely beautiful the story that it tells, and it's an important film. Mm -hmm.